and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. Greetings. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in here today, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. My name is Steve Dace, Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre. They're here with me as well. If you'd like to join us today, 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email the program, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Steve Dace Show. Check us out on our new YouTube channel as well. YouTube.com slash Steve Dace. A lot to get to here today. Theology Thursday, three non-political questions. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, our old friend Matt Walsh. Haven't talked to Matt in a while. He's going to join us to talk about his new book that is uh, releasing on Tuesday. Another, you know, and one of the things about Matt I find frustrating is um, the just the the layers of subtlety, and and you see that in what uh, is kind of a vague title of his new book, Church of Cowards. Right? Really not sure what he's getting at there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Do you know what that's a reference to? Or as he is, I'm Catholic, so I do. <laughs> okay, that was your first blast right out of the gate. Following more subtlety with more subtlety. Ah, Thanks, Todd. Yes. It's going to be one of those shows today, is it? I'm ready for Friday. All right. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Well, let's get it started then. Without further ado, here's Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by Open Season on Mike Bloomberg. The Democrats had yet another debate last night, this time in Las Vegas. What's in the Senate in Washington? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about a major When they weren't talking over each other, Elizabeth Warren was absolutely on the warpath against Michael Bloomberg. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? We have a very few non-disclosure agreements. Uh, how many Let is me that? finish. How many is that? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just po- and let me po- They wish now to speak out and tell their side of the story about what it is they allege. That's now okay with you. You're releasing them on television tonight? Se- Senator? No. Is that right? Senator, the company and somebody else, in this case, a man or a woman, or could be more than that, they decided when they made an agreement that they wanted to keep it quiet for everybody's interest. They signed the agreements, and that's what we're going to live with. Bloomberg did have a couple of good lines of attack on Bernie Sanders, though. We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism, and it just didn't work. What a wonderful country we have. The best-known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. What did I miss here? 
Well, you'll miss that I work in Washington, House One. That's the first problem. Amy Klobuchar really doesn't like Pete Buttigieg. A los soñadores hay que decir que este país es tu país también. Gracias. I wish everyone was as perfect as you, Pete. And Pete Buttigieg attacked Bernie Sanders supporters. Leadership is also about how you motivate people to treat other people. I think you have to accept some responsibility and ask yourself what it is about your campaign in, the partic- in particular that seems to be motivating this behavior more than others. And that's all you really need to know about last night's debate. CNN's Van Jones gave his customary warning to Democrats afterwards. So Bernie versus Bloomberg, I think whatever happens tonight, what, you saw, what you're seeing is that there's a judgment on this party. And, you know, frankly, one of the people I had the most hope in is you because you had a different set of ideas. But the people should be looking in the mirror uh, in this party to figure out what is going on here, because really we should have other choices than just these two outsiders. And MSNBC's Jason Johnson had a pretty good line regarding Mike Bloomberg. This probably was the most expensive night in Vegas I've ever seen. Uh, He lost everything. This guy has spent three hundred and twenty million dollars. He had the opportunity to really stand on stage and appear to be an equal with everybody else. And he looked bored. Uh, he looked disenchanted. And finally, a couple of stories that really don't suck. Earlier this week at the Daytona 500, NASCAR driver Ryan Newman sustained this horrible crash. Newman! Upside down. In a shower of sparks on his roof, Ryan Newman comes across the line for it. Yesterday, he walked out of the hospital holding his two daughters' hands. While the Democrats were debating in Las Vegas, President Trump was in Arizona where he was rallying when this happened. What we're watching are two men physically carrying a World War II veteran to his seat at the rally. And that's what happened while we were away. Aaron's montage brought to you by Keeps which knows a thing or two about what sucks, like that debate last night would be one thing, Um, as well as losing your hair. But you know what doesn't suck? Keeping your hair without ever having to leave your couch. That's why if you're losing your hair, you got to know Keeps. They offer the generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products. That means they're the real deal, but the generic versions are going to save you a fortune. So here's how it works. It's pretty simple. Uh, Just answer a few online questions, snap a few pics of your hair, and a doctor will review everything and recommend the right FDA-approved hair loss treatment for you. And then it is shipped discreetly to your door. And you're probably wondering, does it work? Well, it Yes, for most men. In fact, a majority of those who try this, about two-thirds, even experience hair regrowth thanks to Keeps. So if you want to finally win the battle against uh, the receding hairline, go to Keeps.com slash grow to get your first order for half off, 50% off, half off your first order at Keeps.com slash grow. Yep, half off at Keeps.com slash grow. So let's get to what happened last night and exactly what we predicted on this show Elizabeth Warren would do. She did. Uh, She did the full-blown Chris Christie taking out Marco Rubio in New Hampshire, Roger Ailes and my Fox News contributorship, be damned, uh, kamikaze run on Rubio. She did that to Michael Bloomberg last night. And that two-minute clip, when you watch the full two minutes of it, um, you know, I'm a bit of a debate junkie. I, I can't watch the Democratic debates live. 
in real time. It's just, it's too much toxic sludge. I can't ingest it. So I, I always follow them uh, online. And that's really what matters anyway in it, for me in the Democratic primary debate. I'm not the target audience. I'm not the target demo. So my own opinion of what's happening is really irrelevant to me in this particular matter. I'm, I'm more interested in what the target demo's reaction is to it because they're going to tell me more about what it means than what I think. Too often in conservative media, we, we tell you what we think it means when the other side messages and, and talks, but we're not the audience. So what really matters is what the intended audience thinks. And um, over the years, I mean, I've watched as many of these as I can. I watch the old ones on C-SPAN when they run. Probably the greatest viral beatdown of all time was the vice presidential debate in 1988 when Senator Lloyd Benson looked at Dan Quayle and says, uh, said, hey, I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. And, and you saw the blood drain from Dan Quayle's face in real time. If we had, if we had Twitter in 1988, that kind of moment might have changed, who knows, the outcome of the entire election. But we didn't have it back then. And so the people that watched were really caught up in it, and you talked about it at your water cooler, but it had no lasting power. And George Herbert Walker Bush, despite the, the, the dead water weight and baggage Dan Quayle was, that entire candidacy, went on and won fairly comfortably. I think of some other great beatdowns since then. I, I think that two-minute clip from Elizabeth Warren on Michael Bloomberg is the worst beatdown I have seen in a in one concentrated fell swoop. I don't, I don't know that it's quite what Rubio suffered at the hands of Chris Christie because that went on for two hours. All right? I mean, I, that just was, I mean, he was just there to accomplish one thing. Take Marco Rubio out. Because he wanted to be the can, candidate of the Roger Ailes consultant class. That was really just one Pearl Harbor job you saw last night from... Um, Elizabeth Warren, or it might be more appropriate to say a little bighorn. See what I did there? I do. Yeah. I approve that message. Did, did she Hieronimo him or did she Pearl Harbor him? Which one would it be in her case? Anyway, um, it was devastating. His candidacy is over. It will not recover. It, I don't think it was ever a candidacy to begin with. I think it was an, I told you that yesterday and the day before that. I thought it was entirely a media concoction. I told you yesterday, this is largely about acquiring mass sums of money at his expense. Uh, just chalking up commissions, thoughts and prayers to all the media buyers and media sellers that we're counting on Mr. Bloomberg for round two and round three of, uh, you know, for, for get your Christmas bonus now. But it's over for him. And he actually had some effective moments later in the debate. He's actually running an effective ad right now about socialism and how, how you know, how do you, how, how do you afford all this free stuff? And it's got all the other candidates on the stage looking dumbfounded on a loop. Have you seen this ad that he's running right now? Yes. It doesn't matter <clears throat> because it's the same reason Chris Christie didn't benefit from taking out Marco Rubio, his candidacy was over, you know, within a couple of days after the New Hampshire primary, he was out. It, it benefited the people that were, that were, that were ahead of Marco Rubio. Elizabeth Warren isn't going to benefit from this. Bernie Sanders is. 
I may I may rethink my prediction of who Bernie Sanders' running mate could be. Maybe it will be Elizabeth Warren. I mean, because she did him a solid last night. She set the tempo that it was that it was going to be uh, take out Michael Bloomberg night. They never really got to Bernie Sanders, and by the time Michael Bloomberg got to the kinds of effective arguments against Sanders that we have pointed out could be made. He's making them now. He's saying the things we thought Amy Klobuchar should have said about four or five months ago. I Correct. said on this show. I said four or five months ago on this show, this is the stuff she should be saying. When you go back, Aaron, whatever the date was that she was on The View, that's when we had this conversation was the mm-hmm. day after. I don't know how long ago it was, several months ago. But I said what she should have said on that show was, well, essentially the stuff Michael Bloomberg is saying right now. The problem is he is a terrible person, like a terrible person. And he has no street cred in their party. He has none. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't belong to any. It's a constituency-led party, not an ideologically-led one. It's a constituency-led party. He is not tied into any of their constituencies. He is merely a transactional candidate. He is merely somebody you vote for because you don't like the direction of your party. But I think we're going to be very disappointed. There's a lot of people, a majority of the party does not want Bernie Sanders as their nominee. But I don't think it's because a majority of the party doesn't want to be socialist. I think it's because a majority of the party doesn't think he as a package, as a Soviet package, can win a general election. I think we'll be very disappointed how many people are perfectly fine with socialism once the term is taken away and just the policies themselves are laid out. And that's why you saw when Michael Bloomberg made that challenge last night, the rest of them said nothing because they're actual Democrats and they know this. Yes, they're actual Democrats and they know this is true. They know this. They, They know that there is almost not a scintilla of difference between the policies. They're all advocating all of them. And the stuff that Bernie Sanders has always been for. That's why the cloud got so quiet, too. Yes. Because we don't say that out loud. Yes. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that here. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so the line on MSNBC that Aaron shared, boy, that's one of the great, that, that's one of the best lines I've heard in recent political analysis. That was a very expensive washout in Las Vegas last night for Michael Bloomberg. I think my big picture takeaway, and we can get to more things if you want, Gentlemen, I think it's 80% minimum odds. Bernie Sanders is the nominee. 80% minimum. And I think the only two things standing in his way are whether his health holds up and whether they just decide that losing to Trump again is, is so unseemly. So I can't even that they're going to risk wrecking their party generationally by taking the guy who has more ta- more popularity with the next generation of Democrats than all of the rest of them combined and screwing him in broad daylight. Now, I don't believe there's much of a chance they'll do that. I don't. I think there's much higher odds. A guy that's already had a heart attack and is pushing 80 and is and gets as worked up as Bernie Sanders does. I think there's much higher odds. We just get up one day when it looks like he's coasting to the nomination and he has another health scare. And and now you start asking yourself, can he actually fulfill a candidacy? I think there's a much higher odd of that, much higher. And of my 20%, it would be mostly that, mostly that. I, I think that they they tried doing this in Iowa and it backfired on them immeasurably. I am convinced they tried to screw him. I, I do think they had some legitimate... Um, uh, snafus there in the attempt to screw him, I think were legitimate 
snafus. All right? they, they did two vote counts. He won by over 6,000 votes. And then they tried to say that he lost by th- almost four points. And then every time they did the count, he got closer and closer and closer. And now the only difference between him and Pete Buttigieg is essentially a pack of Sandra Flex condoms. That's the only difference. All right? So they tried screwing him. It became a national story. They got laughed out of the, out of the, out of the process. I don't believe with the numbers he's polling and, and, and pulling amongst the next generation of Democratic voters who are all pretty much socialists openly. I don't believe they're going to risk that form of a generational rift because it would play out in Milwaukee in a way that now you don't just lose to Donald Trump, but you turn Donald Trump into Richard Nixon 72. I mean, you, 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 you have him just decimate you. Because you've divided now your own party. And, and the same thing works on the other side. I've talked about this on the Republican side for years. When, there's a, when, when you feel like the Republican Party screwed you, um, and you feel like a Republican in particular screwed you, I've always used the example of Rick Santorum in the 2008 Senate election. Rick Santorum suffered, uh, or was it 06, Todd? Was it, it was 06. He suffered the worst defeat by an incumbent U.S. senator, not under indictment or scandal, I think in American history. I think it was in American history. Rick Santorum lost by 18 points in Pennsylvania. Well, what happened there was he endorsed uh, Christy Todd Whitman, noted rhino, over Pat Toomey, who hasn't been that great of a conservative, frankly, in the Senate, but he's certainly more conservative than Christy Todd Whitman. You uh, mean Arlen Specter? Arlen Specter. I'm sorry. It was Ar- Christy, Ar- Arlen Specter over Pat Toomey. Thank you. Yeah. But he endorsed Christy Todd Whitman in, in, sure. in, 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 that, in another primary yeah. as well. Now, I think maybe the people are going to let that one go because she was once a sitting governor. But then when he came in over the top for Arlen Specter, you're right about that. Thanks for correcting me. When he came in over the top for Arlen Specter over Pat Toomey, and then it was already going to be pretty obvious he wasn't going to win. That's when that's when the second layer of your base just decides you're not going to win anyway. Why waste my vote when I can send you a message? You know, so since I know you're going to lose, I'll just sit this one out and we'll send a message. And the horse you rode in on is the message. And that's how you lose by 18 points as an incumbent senator in a state where you've been winning statewide for a decade. That That's how that happens. And you could see you would see that kind of a situation, I believe, with the Democratic Party if they if they knifed him in public view. Because it will also be clumsy because the superdelegates, as I explained to you yesterday, they do not have the prevalence in the process that they've had in years past. That was done to, a, to pay reparations for what occurred with Hillary Clinton four years ago. All right. So this one would, would this one, there's, there's, there'd be no hiding it. It would be, it's Brutus waiting outside the Senate for, for Julius Caesar. You know, beware the Ides of March style. You, you, they'd have to do it in broad daylight. And that's where you take Aaron's generation, who's not really much for joiners anyway, uh, if, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases, and like to fashion themselves as contrarians. Well, you stick your middle finger like that up to them, right to their faces. And if it looks like you're going to lose anyway, you know, I could see a lot of that vote just stay home and just say, screw you. We, we, you, you, you know, we'll give you a little bit of what you gave to us. That's why I don't think there's much of a chance they will do that. Because if they were really offended and upset, they'd be doing it right now. Joe Biden would have done it all along, guys. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have abandoned his positions on the Hyde Amendment, fracking, school vouchers. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have done that. He, he's abandoned all these positions because they're not. If Amy Klobuchar would have said this stuff Michael Bloomberg said last night, three, four months ago, except they're not. All right? They're not offended at it. And that's the other reason why, if in the midst of a generational changeover, What's their issue with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and the squad? Way it's not too where, honest. Yeah, it's not where they're at on the issues. It's the, it's the fact they speak out. That's the issue. 
That's not where they're at on the issues. That's why I think there's very little chance of this. I think this is a largely conservative media pipe dream. Like, this is our new Tulsi Gabbard, okay? They're going to screw Bernie as our new Tulsi Gabbard. No, they're not. Nope. So I think, the, I think like 90% of my 20% is Bernie Sanders as an 80-year-old man with, uh, who's a very high strung and just had a heart attack like two and a half months ago or whatever it was, <laughs> health-wise, physically can't hold up. Barring that, he is inevitable. He is inevitable. A candidate that had some street cred didn't just become a, a Democrat 10 minutes ago for sheer opportunism and, and didn't have more NDAs than Donald Trump hands out before breakfast. Right? A candidate, unlike Michael Bloomberg, who's just a terrible person, could have done what he did and is trying to do, but it's too late for him. He's tarnished. So Bernie is inevitable. That's my big picture takeaway. Gentlemen, your thoughts. I more or less agree with that. One of the saddest things about Bloomberg flailing is that, and I like how you brought up the Lloyd Benson thing, because that was so good and so devastating that that's the kind of thing that you base, you, 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 no matter who you are, you don't come back from. You basically just have to kind of like Walter Mondale did with Reagan on the age thing. You just have to laugh at and say, hey, man, well played. Hate the game, not the player. Mm-hmm. But in this thing, as as vicious and well-prepared as Elizabeth Warren is, she's still Elizabeth Warren. If you were prepared and ready and not lazy about your approach to this, you could have turned that around on her. And that's why th- that as much as anything is why it, it is disqualifying for him. Not be she was going to you, you predicted it was going to happen. He, he had to know something like that was coming. And you just sit there and took it like that. That's what's really disqualifying for me about it. Like you she emasculated you, you, him. It, 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 it validates everything they see about him just being a carpetbagger yeah. and coming in and buying the thing. You got you got no game other than your wallet. She castrated him and if all you knew about michael bloomberg before last night were just his ads you'd come away thinking how did this guy get elected to anything how has he ever been successful in anything i wouldn't have this guy this this guy's too weak to coach my son's little league team his aau basketball team let alone be president of the united states she denutted him right there carved him up and he just sat there and took it you know like a you know what and that's why there's no coming back from that, in my view. Aaron? Yeah, I, it's it. There were several laugh out loud moments, at least for me, last night when it uh, when it comes to Michael Bloomberg and and it was I I just don't understand from a big uh, just from a big picture human perspective. You have to have worked really hard to get all that wealth, and then you spend it all three hundred twenty million something like that dollars up to this point in the, in the campaign and you have to know what it takes you, you'd think you have to know what it takes to really to really cut it on on a big stage at a at a high level like that and you come out and you just i mean did you the, the thing that stood out to me he's just standing there like you said taking it yep. and the blinking the blinking like what is going on i don't understand i don't understand how how a human being gets to that point at all it's like i can't I can't want you to win more than more than you do because there's a there's a million ways you can come back. Well, Elizabeth Warren, that's 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 rich for you to say. You know, you just had uh, campaign workers in this state just quit on you, alleging uh, racism, yeah, all exactly. this thing. Yep. You could come back with something like that, but it's just well, 
Uh, these were contracts that were entered into in a consensual manner, and we're just going to have to leave it at that. What the heck was that? What a complete so and total it, mangina. It just, uh, it, it, exactly. Exactly. That's just as not a man, as, guys. He might have a penis. He might yeah. have the right chromosomes. That's not a man. That guy can't be put in charge of anything. I'd vote Elizabeth. If you made, you guys love your false binary choices, Elizabeth Warren, Michael Bloomberg, straight up put the future of the country in their hands. I'm voting Warren based on that exchange. And at the end of the day, who was the one? Who was the one who actually brought up the effective line of attack on Bernie Sanders for the first time in this entire primary? It was the mangina. Yep. Are you kidding me? Good freaking gravy. You know why? Because he has no soul, no worldview. And he doesn't, he, Michael Bloomberg doesn't, isn't for capitalism. Listen to him talk on issues. He's a China cronyist. He's not for capitalism. He's just a rich guy that doesn't want communist and socialist taking away the money he inherited from his family. That's what he is. He's a corporatist. He's a cronyist. He's another form of progressive. He's not a capitalist either. All right. He's been he this is this guy has been has been trying to give your jobs to cheap labor overseas and drive down. He this is the worst one. He's one of the worst corporatist Republicans of all freaking time. Okay, he's not a capitalist. In fact, guys like Michael Bloomberg and letting them become Republicans are why we lost the battle over capitalism and socialism in this generation, linking it up to Republicans like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a corporate. He's a he's a corporatist, and and I think last night just showed you because of that, because that the the, the complete mangina corporatist was the only one to actually unleash uh, a torrid of effective attacks on Bernie Sanders. As much as Amy Klobuchar hates Pete Buttigieg, and as much as Pete Buttigieg loves to lecture you about what the Bible does and does not say, and as much as Elizabeth Warren likes to tell you about how misogynistic uh, you are for not voting for a woman, and how much. Uh, Joe Biden likes to say whatever the heck he wants to say on any given day, uh, doesn't know where he, as much as all of them like all of their little tropes, none of them, none of them are actually serious about wanting to win because none of them will do what it actually takes to actually, you know, take down Bernie Sanders. And I think last night we just, we saw that over and over again. Yeah, because they're all in a tough spot in the end. And, and go back to the analysis I gave on Klobuchar after the, the, the point of the view. I brought up again the whole thing when, when Rick Santorum said in Wisconsin, Mitt Romney cannot win a general election to Barack Obama. He came up with his worst idea before he had it. That, that was the message Rick Santorum should have ran on all along. And within like a week, he was like out of the race. Within 24 hours, he took it back. You want to, I, I know why he took it back. Because everybody on his staff... Sit there and thought, dude, I don't think you're going to be in the race in a week, and I got to go work for the Romney general election campaign. I can't be on. I can't have you out there going kamikaze. In fact, the first person in the Romney campaign that reached out to me after he became the presumptive nominee was one of the highest ranking people in Rick Santorum's presidential campaign. All right, who the minute Rick Santorum was out, just you know, sent in his resume and went on like a true, the true mercenary he is. And so that's why I said back when we discussed Klobuchar after The View, she has to decide to do that, though. She, it's go big or go home. Remember, I said that at the time, too. Mm-hmm. If she does that, it's first place or you're out of the party. OK, like you've got her only shot is to create a reckoning. And but to do that, it might be successful, actually. But but it, but it's it's a pass fail exercise that you're not you're not in the U.S. Senate for the next 10 years. If you do that, All right? you're you're either their nominee and 
uh, or you're out of the, you're excommunicado because you forced that kind of a reckoning. Most of these people don't have that level of commitment. That's why they won't do that. That's why they won't do that. Instead, you know, they're out there wetting their fingers and, and, and testing the breeze and the zeitgeist and realizing, I don't know, this dog may not hunt in this election, but looking, to, looking down the road in the next two, three, or four, I kind of think that it might. And they're right. They're absolutely right about that. It's going to kill them in this election because we're not having, I've said this since this process began last January. We're not having the 2028 and 2032 election. We're having the 2020 election. And this stuff is going to kill them in the 2020 election. But if you don't see revival here in the next few years in a 2028, 2032 election, it won't kill them at all. In fact, it'll be a benefit. Because the country, we have allowed the country to, to, to think Mitch McConnell and Michael Bloomberg are capitalism. We've allowed that. And so if that's capitalism... Because the one thing everybody hates, unless they're the ones getting the actual check, are, are freaking corporatists, man. Everybody hates them. Hates them. Hates them. Hates them. Some of it's not legit. That's why we have this commandment against covetousness, right? But some of it is. Because these people, they, they're, they're the biggest grifters of them all. Far more than the single mom welfare queen in the hood. Okay. Michael Bloomberg's buddies have shaken you down far more than all the welfare queens in America ever have. I promise you that. And so since you've sent the signal to America that that's, we've, we've allowed that to be the face of capitalism in the Republican Party, the day is coming. It's not yet here, but it soon will arrive when Van Jones will not be complaining that they're nominating a candidate like Bernie Sanders, but grateful that they are. Well, on behalf of our dog, Cap, I want to tell you again about his new obsession. It is called Rough Greens Vita Smart. Now, it is not a dog food, but it's a supplement for your dog because just as it happens with us that a lot of our foods have been stripped of the healthy microbacterias and the pre and probiotics and those digestive enzymes and vitamins that are the reason the supplement industry is taking off because we've now got to take these as supplements because so much of it is stripped from our food as humans so that it can have a longer shelf life for mass consumption. The same is also true of our pets, and that's where Rough Greens Vitasmart comes in. It puts all those healthy living organisms that your pet needs back into their food even after it's been stripped out. And apparently it tastes great. I'm going to take Cap's word for it. But he loves this stuff. He woofs this down every single day when we give it to him, whether it's in his food or in his water. All right? So if you want to make your dog's food even better, you want to check out Rough Greens Vitasmart. Here's how. Go to the website, Rough Greens. That's R-U-F-F. Again, it's spelled R-U-F-F, roughgreens.com slash blaze. That's roughgreens.com slash blaze. Or you can also give them a call at 833-693-6433. That's 833-MY-DOG-33. 833-693-6433. The name of the book, and it releases, I believe, Tuesday. Yes, on Tuesday. Church of Cowards. From our old friend Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire. Matt, it's good to have you back here on the Steve Day Show, brother. How you been? Doing well. How about you? 
Could be a little bit better, but I could be a lot worse, if you know what I'm saying. All right? So I got to tell you, I, I know that you really strive for nuance and, and subtlety. The, the title here, it seems vague to me, what you're going for, Matt, with Church of Cowards. Can you kind of um, uh, define for us exactly what it is, um, you're, you're, who it is you're hitting at here? And you, yeah, yes, note the, star, note the sarcasm. Yes. Yeah, I was afraid that uh, I was afraid my point wasn't clear enough in the title. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you gave me the chance to explain that. Well, I mean, it is, it is, of course, uh, you know, jokes aside, it is, it's supposed to be pretty, pretty clear that um, when I talk about a church of cowards, I think that that um, cowardice and complacency, apathy, um, a lack of authenticity, you know, these are the things that are plaguing the church in America. When I say the church, I mean Christianity as a whole in America. And also, when I talk about that, as I as I go into in the book, um, it's not just about the church leaders, although they do come in, in, in my book, they come in for quite a, a lot of criticism that is well-deserved, I think. But it's not just about the leaders. It's also about the just normal people in the pews, uh, you know, you and I, uh, that, that I think also we, we need to look in the mirror and um, and see some of the stuff within ourselves as well. One of the things I have said to audiences I've spoken to and with over the years is that if you believe ultimately in the sovereignty of God, then corporately, uh, on a cultural level, you have to accept that you have as much evil as you are willing to tolerate. That you are you're willing to tolerate, um, you know, uh, three thousand children being executed every single day. And until the church has decided it doesn't want to tolerate it anymore, like the church didn't want to tolerate racism anymore in the 50s and the 60s with the civil rights movement, until the church has decided um, that it doesn't want to tolerate certain ills, those things will be permitted. And I think that kind of speaks to the, 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 the cowardice and complacency that you're addressing there. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that we're very used to uh, whether it's in the church or just as Americans as a whole, we look around at the culture and we say, oh, how did, how did things get this way? It's so terrible. We, we, and we feel like victims. But of course, we have to realize that you know, if, if we really were going to not tolerate it, if we, if we really decided we didn't want things to be this way, they wouldn't be this way. And, uh, and they are this way because this is, what, this is what we want. And I realize when I say we, that's a, it's a general we. doesn't apply necessarily to everyone. But I mean, you bring up the... Um, babies being killed every day, you know, a million babies approximately a year being killed through abortion. And of course, many of us, myself, yourself, and pro-lifers, we're very opposed to it. Hopefully we're actually doing things to not just speak out about it, but to, to contribute to the pro-life cause. But I think even with us, we have to stop and think, well, we're really doing enough. I mean, are, are we as angry about this as we should be? Are we treating this the way we should be treating it? Or have, or, or have we even uh, sort of fallen into complacency and accepted it as normal, and I think that we have. So that is, yeah, that's that's what it's about. It's about it's about facing, uh, as I said, facing that within ourselves. Where's the wake up call then come from? What gets us out of our complacency? Well, I think it has to, you know, the wake up call has to begin with with all of us, you know, listening to what we're saying and realizing that it also includes us. I mean, most of what I talk about in Church of Cowards. Um, I think that you know the average conservative, certainly the average conservative Christian will agree with. I don't think that there's a there's a lot in there that they're going to necessarily disagree with. Um, so it's not it's not really about telling you something that you didn't know. It's about it's about 
you know, confronting these these realities and then um, and realizing that that we're a part of it. One of my great frustrations when it comes to complacency within the church is when it comes to um, statism, progressivism, socialism, whatever name du jour we want to use today. Because I, I think one of the errors that the, the church in America is making is seeing these things as rival political ideologies or economic theories and philosophies. And, you know, we don't want to become, you know, uh, political partisans in the church. We want to have a more transcendent conversation, which, you know, on, on a meta net level, I agree with, except that's not what these items are. I, I think they're religi- competing religiosities. And if you look at, the you know uh, the millennial that's your generation the generation behind it that are all in for socialism it's not because they're staring outside of their uh, surf class hut uh, in, outside Moscow and and seeing the bread lines there in St Petersburg Square and suddenly you know that the the, the Bolshevik uh, uh, mantras seem a little bit more attractive because the Romanovs suck. No, these are highly educated, very, in terms of human precedent, spoiled generations that don't see that level of suffering. I think this is religious fervor. The idea that it, it's what Chesterton said, when, you, when the government removes the God, the government will become the God. That this is the rival religion to Christianity vying for the hearts and minds in this culture. And, and the church has largely just punted on confronting these things, even though a lot of the people that it wants to reach, Matt, and is bringing in to its into its congregations are infested with this kind of status thinking. And that's, that's I mean, that, that's part of the job of discipleship is going after, you know, the, the, the cultural baggage you bring in and transforming it into a Christian world and life view. And I think we're way too complacent about what these what these uh, political mobilizations really are. I think they're rival religions. I would agree with you. And that's why I think uh, we need to start looking at why, what is it about the socialist religion uh, that young people find so appealing? What, what, someone like Bernie Sanders, he, he's making his case in a certain way. Well, how is he making that case and why is it appealing? And I think we have to go beyond the normal sort of thing is, oh, well, millennials are a bunch of idiots and they're all entitled and that's, and that's the reason. I mean, we, we, many of us are idiots and we are entitled, but there's, there's, there is more to it than that. And if that's as far as our analysis is going to go, then, then we're going to lose. We're going to lose the entire generation. So what are some of the things that the socialists are doing? Uh, well, I think one is they're making a moral argument. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're, they're, they are making the moral argument for all for everything. They don't they don't they don't make practical arguments. They don't make economic arguments. That that's one major misnomer here is we think that this is this is an economic uh, system and that they're and that they're appealing to people on an economic level. Not at all. That's that's not that Bernie Sanders doesn't do that at all. That's why he he can't explain his 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 plans or what he wants to do or how any of it's going to work because that's not the point. His point is. Uh, you know, this is wrong. You've got people that are drowning in debt and you've got the working class and they're suffering and yada, yada, yada. yada. He gives his whole spiel. He says, this is wrong. It's, it's, it's morally wrong. And so we just have to fix it. Now, um, I, I disagree with his, uh, with his solutions such as they are, but, and, and, and often I disagree with the things that he says are, are morally wrong. I think he's wrong on that sometimes too. But at least, but at least he's talking about the moral aspect of it, and I think that that needs to be 
uh, part of the part of the response from conservatives. And also, I would the other thing is, um, socialism is a is an all encompassing sort of thing, and it requires something of you. It requires sacrifices. Yeah. Now, with with a caveat, of course. I mean, most of the sacrifices it requires, it's like requiring other people to make those sacrifices, like billionaires. But Again, socialists are at least talking about things like sacrifice, and conservatives don't want to talk about that because we're forever going to scare people away. So sacrifice and uh, morality, uh, I think, are, are the keys. I've been warning our audience as well that the arguments we've traditionally made over the years against, um, against these sorts of statist schemes have all been materialistic. Like the argument against Obamacare 10 years ago was we cannot afford it. Well, what if we were running budgets that were balanced like we did at the end of the of the Clinton administration in the, in the late 90s? And we technically could afford it. Would that mean forcing nuns to pay for abortions and your and your birth control? Would that through Obamacare? Would it be OK then because we can afford it now? And that the, the problem with those kinds of arguments is when the other side is arguing meta and you're arguing material, eventually they're going to start saying things like they're saying now, which is it doesn't matter what it would it cost these are injustices that must be addressed if you would have gone back 170 160 years ago to the christian abolitionist movement and gone into the churches that were preaching abolition and said to them hey it sounds great freeing the slaves and all but you understand that you know that that uh, you know unskilled unpaid labor keeps the cost of goods and services cheap and helps the American economy grow, you suddenly start treating all of these people as employees deserving of a living wage, you're going to pay more to correct that injustice. Are you sure you want to pay more when you go to the general store for your goods and services because now we're shelling out living wages to employees in a competitive market? They'd have laughed you out of there because this was a, this was a grave injustice that a, man, a human can own another human being made in, the, made in the image of God. They wouldn't have entertained this materialistic argument that fervor is now you see this in the next generation in in people like Ocasio-Cortez for example they're making these kinds of arguments now which is it doesn't matter what it costs we spend how much money to invade Afghanistan every week and yet we can't give a single mom health care and and if we're going to come back with you know what's uh you know what's the stock uh you know market doing and uh what's uh the the inflation rate and quantitative easing we're going to lose your generation with those kinds of arguments for answers what are your thoughts yeah absolutely and it's 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 irrelevant to the moral question uh even if it was relevant the fact is that people don't really care that much so it's not it's not it's not moving people i think this is a a big misconception people have that that you know that voters go to the uh go to the ballot box thinking mostly about their wallets and and, then that's what and that's what really motivates people i disagree i think most people actually aren't thinking about that i think they're thinking about deeper things like what is right? What's the right? thing? That's what motivates people. And the other problem is there's a double edged sword, because when we try to make the utilitarian, as you say, materialistic argument against socialism or against student loan forgiveness or whatever, um, and, and we say, well, that's the reason why we can't do it. Well, then then they can take that and use it against us on, quote, our issues, like something like abortion. And, and they can say, well, you know, if we get rid of abortion, you're going to have all of these unwanted, so-called unwanted children out on right. the streets, unemployment and so on and so on. Um, and of course, our response to that is, even if it's true, it's completely irrelevant. Who cares? The fact is, you can't kill people. That's mm-hmm. our point. End of discussion. And so, I, I yeah, I totally agree with you. Final question I want to ask you, if, and, and take as much time. I've got about uh, three or four minutes here. If to any clergy that are in this audience right now, 
what would you like to say to them about your book and why they want to read it? Because ultimately, um, you know, that's where a lot of this, the leadership that you want has to come from. It has to come from the people that, that hold the kinds of leadership positions in the church uh, and are supposed to be shepherding the flock. What would you say to them? What I would say is if, if there's one thing I'd want them to take away from the book, I guess it's don't, don't be afraid of scaring people away of, uh, of scaring people out of the pews. Um, because maybe, maybe you will, you know, the, the thing is if, if you get up there and you speak the truth and you engage on these issues and you engage with the culture and you really try to fight the spiritual battle, uh, the, the, you, you are, you the, the, the origin, the, the initial impact is that it's going to th- thin the herd a little bit. People are going to be, some people are going to be scared. They're not going to come back. But here's the thing. Those people, they're not really Christian anyway. They're just there taking up space. So maybe that's not such a bad thing. If uh, if they're in the in the beginning, there's a little bit of a of a purge, of a self purge, of people saying, "Oh, you know, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't want this." A pruning. And then they yeah. decide not to come back. At least then they they will know where they stand, and they'll have to confront who they are and what they really believe. And then once we're at that point, um, now we can now we know what our nucleus is, what our core is as Christians, and we can start building from there. Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire. Check out his new book. Um, it is called Church of Cowards, and it releases on Tuesday. You can pre-order it right now over at Amazon.com. If you just go there and search for either the title of the book, there's a copy of the cover if you're watching on Blaze TV, or search for his name as well. Always good to see you, brother. Thanks for joining us here today on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast. Thanks a lot, Steve. Appreciate it. You bet. Gentlemen, you have any thoughts on the conversation we just had with Matt Walsh? Uh, that last part is everything pruning yes it's it's everything this is why i say the excommunications must continue until morale improves you're not doing anybody a favor of course this is a hospital for sinners but it's how welcoming in people what happens if people refuse the treatment but once they're exactly once they're there then that's a different conversation you're not doing anybody favors even even either the ones specifically trying to promote a sin or everybody else there who's going along and gets kind of the drip, drip, drip about what's really at stake here. There's got to be a tension in the, in uh, the Protestant world, the, the am, am I really saved notion mm-hmm. of things, which is less a thing in, in, in Catholicism. Security, right. But, but you're, you're, you need to be thinking about that question, and there needs to be a tension about the possibility of you getting kicked out that door because you need to think a little bit more deeply about what this thing is, who God is, what his sovereignty is, well, your place under that. And all too often, and this is why I joked with you earlier about that, why this is, as a Catholic, I understand this is a church of cowards. That tension is almost never, ever there. And that's a gigantic problem. There's a reason why Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he did. Um, 1937, as as the rise, and I know whatever that that law, Poe's law, Godwin's law, Godwin's law. There you which go. Which we're about to break. Uh, which yeah, <laughs> but it's appropriate. I don't mean I don't mean to yeah. uh, break this. Oh no, yes, no, I'm going there. I mean, there's a reason why he wrote that up against the backdrop of of the rise of the Nazi regime because he saw in his culture cheap grace abounding, and that's what we have in our culture right now. It's it's cheap grace, and you talked about discipleship earlier that. Uh, yes, uh, you know we're we're all we're all sinners, but part of this journey of discipleship is remolding and reforming your mind into a, a biblical worldview. How you 
see the world, not just having the the right answers and the right uh, uh, you know saying things with the right tone all of the time. Uh, it is it is a hard road, and that hard road turns off a lot of people. But that's that is part of the cost of of discipleship. It is a narrow road, and that's um, you know that's I think that's probably. Uh, the the main call of that conversation is that we cannot afford we cannot afford any longer to just do things for things' sake. We can't afford to just do church for church's sake and go along to get along. Uh, discipleship, at the end of the day, is a very costly and hard thing because it is a narrow road, and that's what we're called to. A lot of people, you know, if you've ever been to a Sunday school, you know the story about Jesus and the you know, feeding the five thousand with a loaf of bread and a fish, right? And often the, the culmination of that story is not taught. And because after he gets done, he's, he's performed a great miracle and he's feeding their bellies. He's meeting their material needs. When he gets done, he starts to uh, address their spiritual needs. And he says, now, if anybody comes after me, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. All right, he's speaking metaphorically about the sacrament of communion is what he's talking about. And, and also literally in a sense that you have to follow in his footsteps and be willing to suffer for this. And people get up and leave, offended at what he's saying. He doesn't chase after any of those people. Instead, he turns to the people who stay and looks at them and says, hey, are you going to leave me now too? And there it is. And there's the model you're talking yes. about. And it's not practiced by the vast majority of Christian churches in America. Theology Thursday is next. <laughs> We are back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. By the way, if you do listen to us via the podcast, thank you. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on whichever podcast platform you prefer because the more of those we get, the more it helps us to grow the show and make it more likely we get to continue doing this for you. So please consider that. And thank you to the thousands of you that have done that for us already. 888-900-3393 is the number. 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email the show and let us know what you think about what we think. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And the last name is D-E-A-C-E. You can also check us out at youtube.com slash Steve Dace to get uh, some stuff to sample and share from the program as well. Theology Thursday brought to you by Riduzone, who wants to help you keep your resolve uh, to lose weight and eat right here in 2020 because dieting alone is hard, maybe too hard. Um and how about those of you that are like, well, you know, I've, I've done this diet six times. It's worked every time. Uh, it, it's really about changing your lifestyle and, and working out helps. It probably has more benefits in your overall health than just purely with weight loss, because in the end, you can't out-train a bad diet. And that's where Riduzone comes in. For most of us, the issue isn't what we're eating, but how much and how often. And Riduzone can help you keep those cravings and portion sizes under control because it's the only FDA-accepted product that includes OEA. That's the naturally occurring molecule that helps you feel full faster, burns stored fat, while reducing your calorie intake at the same time. If you want help resisting those cravings uh, that, uh, that are ruining your resolution, your resolve, go to, pro- go to use promo code Steve at Riduzone.com, R-I-D-U, Z-O-N-E, that's how you spell Riduzone, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E. 
RidUZone.com. Use promo code Steve when you go there. You're going to get up to 65% off. That's incredible savings, as well as free shipping. You can't beat that deal to give it a shot. Up to 65% off plus free shipping at RidUZone.com. Promo code Steve. Well, let's get to it. Theology Thursday. And you know what? Talk about some serendipity. Uh, This is actually right in line with what we just discussed with Matt Walsh. And, you know, we didn't line it up that way. Matt was actually supposed to be on the show like a week ago, but was sick and had to reschedule. So it just so happens that he's on today. And it just so happens that the topic we're going to do in Theology Thursday really gets to the cost of discipleship. So for those of you that uh, uh, don't recall, we're doing a a series here to start off 2020 uh, on Theology Thursday, where my wife and I are taking a Bible study class that's like seminary 101 grade level. You can actually get seminary credit for taking it at church. And uh, we're we're taking it uh, on Tuesday nights. And part of this is each week we have to write a paper um, that's, you know, about two to three pages responding to one of the essay questions at the end of uh, of that particular week's reading, okay? And we're into the book of Acts with, with this week's conversation. And one of the things you see in the book of Acts is you see repeated what the cost of discipleship is. So for, the, for Theology Thursday, this week we're going to answer this question. The book of Acts is also the story of the early church, during its first few decades of ministry. What were some of the problems that confronted the early church? How did it deal with those problems? And what lessons can be learned to help the 21st century church? That's, guys, that, that's right in line with what we were just discussing with Matt Walsh. Completely. So I, I want to do this in a way that specifically talks about the church in America and here in the West because that's the situation that we all live in every day and and know the best, all right? It, we, it, some of this is, are things we've talked about before, but I think they bear repeating to contextualize this conversation. If you look at current demographic trends, there are better odds that you will become a believer if you're born in Beijing as opposed to Boston. Manila instead of New York City. Muhammad has been the most popular new baby name for boys in London several years running now. Only about 2% of France is evangelical. And throughout Europe, the great cathedrals of old, many of them Catholic, are either mostly deserted or being converted into mosques in real time. Now, here's why that's noteworthy in our part of the world. Because it's been over an eon since Christianity was not the dominant driving cultural force in the West. Now, did I say the only one? No. No. This isn't the celestial kingdom, okay? We are human beings with, we're double-minded, we're tempted, we're distracted, and so are the other eras in which the church was the driving force in the culture. They, they struggled with hypocrisy and sin and, and turning away and backsliding just, just as we do. I mean, the, the Church of England was started because Henry VIII couldn't get another annulment from the Pope. 
And then the Pope wouldn't to Catherine of Aragorn. And he wouldn't wouldn't grant him an outright divorce either because you know, that would risk excommunication. And the annulment, they had, they'd been married for too long for an annulment. They clearly had consummated the marriage. His, he was upset that he wanted a younger bride and he couldn't get a male heir. Pope wouldn't give it to him. So he just, this, this is, we're a long way from a Catholic monk named Martin Luther at a Catholic seminary, nailing his theses to the door to have a theological debate. We're a long way away from that. We're not, we're not having a theological debate at all. Okay. This is just a guy who's power mad and he wants what he wants. And he doesn't want any authority on earth higher than him telling him that he can't have it. And that's where the church of England came from. It's known as the Anglican church today. That, that's its origin. You ever were taught the Lord's prayer? And yet when you read in the gospels, when the, when the disciples say, Jesus teaches how to pray and he gives them the Lord's prayer, the line for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You notice that's not in there. That's a, that's a doxology that Henry VIII added. He added that. He liked it. That was his two Corinthians. He added that. Yeah. That's where it comes from. Because, you know, he's a king and he liked the idea of power and glory forever and ever. That's a major branch of Christianity. So it shouldn't shock you to learn that the second best, second greatest nonfiction bestseller of all time is a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And it was written by a guy named John Bunyan, who was a, who was a church in the, a pastor in the Anglican church in the church of England, except another king was, was running the show then and wanted, wanted to certify, wanted to um, supervise what could be taught from the pulpits, what parts of the Bibles could be preached or whether it could be preached at all. And you needed a license. You needed a, a license from the state to preach. And Pastor Bunyan said, nah, nah, I, don't, I don't do the church of state. I belong to the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you the same answer that they gave in the book of Acts. They gave to Nero and Domitian or, and, or Diocletian and, uh, and um, Caligula when, when they tried this. No. I'm going to give you the same answer they gave him in the book of Acts. No. I'm not going to do that. So they threw him in prison. And I think it was what he's there for, what, 15 or 16 years. And over the course of that time, using whatever elements like rocks existed in the cell, he wrote the original manuscript for Pilgrim's Progress on the walls of this prison cell. Here in our country, who are the pilgrims, the Puritans? Where did, where, where did they come from? I mean, we are, we are a country first settled by those inspired by Christianity. Well, there was a group of people that saw how the Church of England, which they were originally all for, because they wanted a Protestant church in England to break away from Roman Catholicism that they thought was theologically in error. Even at first, some of their forefathers were cynically willing to use Henry VIII as a political tool to get cultural hegemony over Catholicism in the culture. Of course, what they unfortunately soon learned is they were not the ones using Henry VIII. 
he was using them. And when they eventually stepped in and said, you know, there's certain things a king can't do, he did them like he did his mentor. Do you remember who his mentor was? Who had educated Henry VIII? Thomas More. Thomas More. Sir Thomas More, the man for all seasons. That was his teacher. And he eventually started doing the Protestants like he did Sir Thomas More. Because this wasn't a theological argument to Henry VIII. This was about power. That's what it was about. If you deny me the power I want, I'll make you suffer, Catholic and Protestant alike. Years go by, and can you imagine that a church founded by such a terrible premise could potentially become corrupted? Sure, because it was corrupt at its premise. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> All right? So the years go by, and the Puritans are like, this church blows, needs to be purified. And lo and behold, they, they, they take their matter to the church leadership. And the church leadership was like, you know what? We had this sneaking suspicion something just wasn't right around here. We thought, just can't put our finger on it. Thank you for bringing these matters to our attention. And the reforms will begin post-haste. Is that, is that what they did? No, no. They, they were the ones doing the corruption. They weren't interested in reform, only deform, because they wanted power too. So those Puritans eventually were getting persecuted as well. So they became separatists, pilgrims, and had to leave. First they went to a Dutch colony, and then eventually they jumped on a rickety boat called the Mayflower and came here. So there's never been a time in American history that Christianity was not the driving force in the culture. I didn't say the solo, the only, not even the only prevalent one, but it, there's never been a time Christianity was not the driving force in American culture. And it's been over an eon since it's been the driving force in Europe until now. That's no longer the case now. Until now, Western, prior to our era, Western Christians could not recall a time they were not the most influential block in the culture. They can't recall a time. And if you, want, if you want to know anecdotally how things have changed, look at last night's debate. You know, we're not too far away from politicians claiming they were for the things that the Bible says are righteous while not really being so, but thinking they needed to say these things in order to get elected, right? Right. And why would they need to say those things even if they didn't believe them to get elected? Why? Because Christianity was the driving force in the culture. And since they need to get, a, you know, a plurality of people to vote for them, pretty good chance the people they need to vote for them have been influenced by Christianity as the driving force in the culture. Instead, what we get now is now we have, we have a guy who is living in open rebellion to God, has taken a, a papal designation upon himself to essentially sanctimoniously lecture the rest of us about why his heresy is superior to Christian orthodoxy. And he gets to decide what right or wrong is. And it's so nauseating that someone else who even buys his lies is standing next to him on the debate stage last night, Amy Klobuchar, who wholeheartedly, whole cloth endorses his agenda. 
But even she is so nauseated by it. She says, we all just can't be as, as perfect as you, St. Pete. Okay? That's how things have changed. It used to be they, they came to church on Sunday, said their Bible verses, and had, you know, had their peccadilloes on the side in the red light district under the cover of darkness. Now their peccadilloes are the platform they run on. And they preach to you. That's what it looks like. When, we, when you hear terms, you live in a post-Christian culture. What does that look like? That. That's what it looks like. Where we take advantage, the enemy takes advantage of a culture that has been so dumbed down on its heritage that it actually takes its relics now and its pillars, retcons them as his own, and clubs you over the head with them. That's what's going on now. Of all the candidates that were run in this cycle, Donald Trump included, no one will reference the Bible more than Pete Buttigieg already has. That's what it looks like to live in a post-Christian culture. And that's why I think Western Christians are now facing, or at the very least about to, I, I think we already are facing it. But we're actually facing what, is, what has really been quite common in the history of, the, of our faith. This is, it's not common to us in the West, but everywhere else in the world, right now and up until the West, this was very common. Christianity has typically been the outlier, the provocateur point of conflict in the cultures that it has come to. We'll get to this later on when we get, well, we can bring it up because it comes up in Acts as well. One of the things you learn in Acts is what happens when Paul goes to Ephesus. This is a culture that is so, it's so mired in paganism. When I, when I talk about paganism, progressivism, socialism, statism, that these aren't economic theories. These are not, these are not, alternative or opposing political ideologies, but they are the rival religion. They're branches of the same rival religion. This is what you see encountered in Acts when Paul arrives at a place like Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This is a place that is so mired and steeped in its paganism, it is fused with the local economy. It's its socioeconomic status, like what Bernie Sanders is preaching. That was the worship of Artemis or Diana. So when Paul showed up, he wasn't just a threat to the, the, the places of pagan worship, but the very fabric of, of that civilization, how they, how they sustained themselves, put a roof over their head, fed themselves and their children all stemmed from this pagan religion. He was a threat to the or civilized order, just as the likes of Bernie Sanders are a threat to your civilized order now. There was no, um, Paul did not run, did not show up in Ephesus and say, I want you to know, I'm a, I'm a religious moral Christian, but not an economic one. By all means, Cash the check over there at the Temple of Diana. You know, just, I'll see you on Sundays. No. 
that 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 he understood what he represented was a was an alternative was urban renewal that these cultures could not coexist one would last and one would not he understood this and he had all the marks of suffering throughout the book of acts all the marks of suffering to prove it but just like his predecessor apostles peter and john when they go to the temple to preach and perform miracles and the religious authority who doesn't believe Yeshua of Nazareth is the, was the Messiah, let alone that he rose again from the dead. When they bring in these uneducated Jewish men who now suddenly speak with power and authority because they have the Holy Spirit, they have them beaten for daring to defy their earthly authority. And it says in the book of Acts, they counted it joy to suffer for the name. That they took that to mean the fact that the world lashed out at them. They took those lashes to mean they were in the center of God's will. That they were doing what they were called to do. This is what the Lord put them here for. On the other hand, as Matt Walsh was talking about last hour, we seek to avoid suffering at almost any cost. We, we seek to avoid confrontation at almost any cost. It's funny. Does Bernie Sanders seek to avoid confrontation at any cost? I mean, he's up there being attacked by his, a guy who idolizes him. Pete Buttigieg, in his own words, admitted he idolized Bernie Sanders. And Buttigieg is up there attacking Sanders for his Bernie bros and their and and how zealous, overzealous they are online. Bernie show any remorse for that? I mean, one of his Bernie bros tried to assassinate about one tenth of the the member, Republican members of Congress two years ago. He gave a speech afterwards. It was a good speech. Has he shown a lot of remorse in the last two years about the behavior of of his most zealous followers? No, no. And he just let Pete Buttigieg talk. And then just, when it was his turn, he just gave out his talking points. Like, it wasn't like Pete Buttigieg ever said anything about it. Didn't care. So, so you're losing to them because they're pushing the conflict and they're not afraid of it. They're okay with losing. We're not okay with losing. Somebody sent me a note a few minutes ago. Matthew Shuddock, I think was his name. How, how did it get to the point that the religion of socialism became so dominant in the last generation or for the next generation? It's exactly what we just talked about. If you let people think Paula White is Christianity, they will go to another religion. And if you let people think Michael Bloomberg and Mitch McConnell are capitalism, they'll go to the other, they'll go to its competitor. Because you, you ship illegals here to take my job. When I want to make a living wage, you ship my job overseas. And you pay slave labor over there in Mexico or Thailand and then reap all of the profits and then come back to the government for tax incentives and economic development. If that's capitalism, I'm a no. 
And you know what? So am I. I'm a no two on that. It's not. That's why I oppose it. But that's why we, 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 we sold people heresy and false teaching for, because of political expediency. We had to win this next election. John McCain had to win or it was over. Over. Barack Obama would, would end us. Mitt Romney had to win or it was over. It was over. We had to suspend free market principles to save the free market or the country was over. See, we, are, we uh, whatever will avoid suffering, we go for. So our focus is always the very next election. Enjoy 2020. It'll be fun. They'll nominate a socialist. He'll likely get massacred. Well, they'll, uh, they'll nominate an open, honest one. And you'll probably club him with arguments all from the wrong premise that will then set the stage for your defeat in, in the years to come. Mark my words. Because you're not going to attack it on a moral basis or the theological one that it's really about. You're going to attack it on, why would we switch now? Look at the, look at the unemployment rate. Look at consumer confidence. All utilitarian arguments. And what's utilitarianism about? Whatever causes the most amount of good for the least amount of suffering is in and of itself good. No standard other than that. A Mother Teresa who forsakes a lifetime of worldly uh, possessions, pleasure, status to serve the absolute least of these in Calcutta her entire life. That's a language we don't speak here in the West. We don't speak that language. The, uh, the, 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 the enemy's camp has decided, hey, you guys don't want to use that language anymore? We'll take it. I mean, we're, we're, we're gonna, we've been trying to take it from you, but you guys are just going to hand it to us? Cool. And we'll teach Aaron's generation utopianism. We'll teach them themes like redemption and salvation and sanctification. And it'll be for Mother Earth, of course. But if you don't want those things, we've, the enemy's like, man, I thought this was going to be like a real terrible battle. Like I was going to have to get in the knockdown, drag out fight. Creating, co-opting your pillars and, and fundamentals and counterfeiting them against you. I had no idea you guys were just going to just abscond, abdicate. You're going to be like some British uh, royalty that just, you know, wanted to marry a divorcee. Or the, or the latest one. I, I, you know, I just, of all the women in the world, I've got to have this one feminist chick. So I don't, I don't want my royalty anymore. That's what Christianity is in the West. I want it easy. I want it complacent. I want it spoon-fed. And I don't want it to create any conflicts at all with those in conflict with my Christianity. When the whole point of my Christianity is a conflict. To get Christianity, first of all, we had to take two pieces of wood and nail them together. Whenever you put wood on wood, what do you get? Friction. Whenever you have a hammer hit a nail, what do you get? Blunt force. And we had to take your Lord and hang him up on these two pieces of wood that are intersecting with each other. And we had to put the nails then through him and let him bleed out. 
after we nearly beat him to disfigurement. We had to do that. Gentlemen, where's the complacency there? Do you see any complacency there? Any comfort there? Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Only suffering found there. How many of those Puritans, those pilgrims, lost their loved ones, their children on that boat? And then the first few winters, they were there at Plymouth Rock. All of them lost somebody. Their population was thirded. From the time they got on the boat to year three, when things began to turn around, they had, their numbers had declined by like a third or no, a half. Everybody, that means everybody lost somebody to pay the price to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. They wanted to obey him so badly they gave up their own lives. That, all of that is just really foreign to us. Now, we are the church whose fathers sit on their hands when their daughters have opportunities taken away from them out there on the state track meet. That's the church that we are. We are the church that either brings in the fake partisan voter guides from Ralph Reed's uh, uh, scam or no voter guides at all. That's the church that we are. And that's why evil's on the march because that's where the acts-like commitment is found with the Bernie bros and not with us. That's America's true church now. So enjoy clubbing them over the head this year. You will, more than likely. But understand, the clock is ticking. And zero hour will soon arrive when all of those government school educated chickens are going to come home to roost. The time is a coming. This isn't midway. 2020 is not midway where you, you get momentum back. It's your battle of the bulge. It's your last great offensive before you lose. That's what's coming without revival. I promise you. That's what's coming. Revival or bust. Your thoughts, gentlemen. Well, there's never any hegelian dialectic to be had with the way the truth and the life i'm we, glad you brought that and i should we should discuss that more often on our show we but, keep yeah. thinking there is there's nothing new under the sun we, we the more the more perfect way we can perfect the perfect uh no we can't we 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 get uh this grotesque perversion that are the false religions that steve and matt got done talking about and and they steal the moral voice away from an entire culture because we forsake our birthright. This is biblical all the way back to the beginning. We'll come back. It's been kind of heavy here for the last hour. We'll make it a little bit lighter with three non-political questions. I hope you're ready to go, Aaron. You bet. All right, we'll do that when we return here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Stay tuned. Don't let what happened to Deborah happen to you. She had her home stolen like the actual home itself. The FBI refers to this as home title theft and says it's one of the fastest growing white collar crime sprees in the country. 
And that's why you need to protect your home with home title lock. So you don't end up with like Deborah did. Uh, when criminals found the title to her home online, which is where all of our home titles are typically kept as well, they then filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned it. And it gets even worse. She ended up getting evicted from her home, losing out on $85,000 in equity that she had built into that investment over the years. Now gone. Nobody believes that their home can be taken this easily until it happens to them. And that's why you want to go to Home Title Lock first. All right. Understand your insurance, your bank can't protect you. Home Title Lock will. First thing you do, go to HomeTitleLock.com, register your address to see if you're already a victim and don't even know it yet. And then sign up to help protect the legal title to your most important investment, your own home, so that you don't end up like Deborah. And you can get 60 risk-free days of protection right now. 60 risk-free days of protection at HomeTitleLock.com. That's HomeTitleLock.com. All right, let's lighten the mood in here a little bit. Uh, Let's go to three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Yes, because it's been a pretty heavy show today. Three non-political questions, as Steve just stated, lightning the mood. Question number one, if the Earth were faced with a zombie apocalypse, what would be your plan of action to protect yourself and your loved ones? That's lightening the mood, the zombie apocalypse. Indeed. Um, I don't have a plan, and I, I don't believe there's any chance of a zombie apocalypse occurring. So I don't, I don't have a plan. Because I don't, I don't think I need one. I this is one of those things, and there's more and more research about this, about how these um, active intruder drills at schools are not only really preparing you for anything, but they're just freaking the hell out of the kids. Yeah, duh. But they're the professionals. Go educating all of us. Thanks for that. I think the same applies to zombie apocalypse. Like the just. You just need to be a dude, you know, uh, like in um, down in uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, that that picture of the flooded buses that you, the plan was to have dad, they, they, people they called dads with water because they didn't put any people on them. And, right. and because there were the men were largely gone from these parts of the city that needed to be led out to, to be helped. Mm-hmm. The, the men are AWOL. So I guess how about um, having, you know, authentic masculinity? That's job number one in the zombie apocalypse. Now I, I I do think. Can I make it weird for a second? See, I don't I don't believe there's any kind of, according to a biblical worldview, that there's only one kind of apocalypse. Okay, but do I think it is possible, especially going down the roads we're going right now? We're trying to. Cafe menu, human beings, uh, genetic engineering, what's a gender, okay? Uh, Gene splicing and all the other stuff that we're messing around with right now. Do I think it is possible that we could 
become so amoral at that point that we could generate an outbreak of something. I mean, I don't know that we would see, you know, the purge walking, is what you're yeah, walking the dead brain eaters, but that we could generate almost a mindless, you know, homo sapien creature that, that whose soul is already so far gone that as we mess with things, what are you laughing for? <laughs> There's so many jokes that I could make right now. <laughs> okay. But as we, as we, as we tinker with things like, like we don't really know, for example, we don't, a lot of the psychotropic drugs we brought to market over the years didn't spend the years and years and years getting clinical trials. Other drugs did. So you mix in all the op- opioids and everything else. Now we want to, you know, um, chemically castrate our nine-year-old boys. We are, when you, when you delve into technology with no moral framework and and the technology becomes the moral framework in and of itself, which means you're not even going to test your methodologies. You're just going to you're going to abandon the scientific method whole cloth because nothing will deny me what I desire, right? That science is not even it's not even a materialistic process for technological advancement or answer seeking now. Like you're not even an atheist anymore. You're not even a naturalist anymore. But science is magic. Science is utopian. And I'm, I'm going, uh, you know, sci- you're, you're Palpatine instead of I will make it, I will make it science, right? You're, when it becomes wizardry at that level, you just abandon the scientific method altogether. You're not testing hypotheses. No, no. What you're doing is affirming desires. Now, my, we're, I would say in terms of we're a good swath of the culture, how it views science, we're practically there. And we're only limited by what the current technology affords us to indulge. You see where I'm going with this? Oh, completely. I, I, but I, I, don't, you're, don't pull your punches. Yeah, we I, are there. I think that level of tinkering could create a, a, you know, a mutation that would just essentially be uh, mindless beings who see others as, you know, zombies are a metaphor. The idea that other human beings exist only for they're a metaphor for the notion that other human beings only exist for my satiation have no other purpose other than you know soylent green as people could we i mean utilitarian wise we already you know have a movement along those lines in our culture already do i think we could techno technology technologically devolve to create such a mutation within our own species well i mean i don't know we want to chemically chemically castrate five-year-old boys we have we have you know eleven year old boys cross dress you know uh, doing uh, uh, lap dances and uh, are drag queens on Good Morning America. I don't think we're too far away from such a notion of such an of, a, of creating that kind of an outbreak. I think that's possible. Yeah, I do. You know, I think if you want to open Abaddon up and see what's inside the pit, you know, and and that's where you're getting your uh, science from. Okay, if you're getting it from Abaddon, you know, then yeah, I I, I could see. Who knows what comes, what vileness comes out of that uh, Pandora's box. And so if, if that sort of outbreak were to occur, I like your answer. And I'm going to find the guy, I'm going to find the, the authentic masculinity that, that owns the most weapons. And I'm going to make him my buddy. Yeah, yeah. we're talking yeah. about so, uh, uh, pathologies writ large. 
uh, social pathologies that um, there's, again, it's like I said about the Hegelian dialect. There's no negotiating. There's no there's no midway. There's no coming together. You, you, you this is uh, Aragorn. It, Offer them no mercy, for none will be shown to you. There was a, a really good movie. Uh, well, I, I'd have to go back and see it again. But you, it had Jeff Bridges and Kiefer Sutherland. And it was like the first movie before you knew who she was of Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock is Keith Sullivan's girlfriend and she gets abducted and and murdered Hmm. by Jeff Bridges' character. And the premise is, early in the movie, Jeff Bridges is like this college professor, egghead smart. He's in middle age. But uh, somebody fell into a river and everybody's going, somebody save him, a a boy or something like that. And he jumps in and saves him and is made to be uh, the hero, but he discovers about himself that he did not do it out of any sense of right and wrong. I mean, he there's there was always a Hannibal Lecter quality uh, about him, and he realized that he just kind of did it because he people told him to do it. So he 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 started testing his his theory about if he like had any urges at all, and he went in reverse. Mm-hmm. So he abducted her, and he found he just like he could do anything. It didn't matter. He was not bugged by anything i bring that up because we we are increasingly becoming a culture that is collectively going into that level of pathology we just can't we can't tell as long as we're comfortable we we, there's no moral compass at all and if we get to that point again it's not about individual souls obviously in that relationship with god and salvation but you know there's a point where they gone is gone and, and we have i'm not guessing at that the devil is in fact the devil. He is one of the Lord's mightiest creations who still said, nah, I'm going to pass on this. It, evil simply must be defeated at some point. Mm-hmm. Part of the allure of this segment sometimes is that it does not go anywhere where I where I thought it was going to go. Mm-hmm. That was pretty uh, That was pretty fascinating. I, I think for me, it involves uh, getting guns, grabbing as many loved ones as possible, Heading for the hills and maybe an airport. I think I think that's probably hmm. probably what I would do. You're like Neo in the Matrix. We're going to need guns. Yes, lots yeah, exactly. and lots of guns. Yeah. Um, and an equally apocalyptic question: uh, What's on your Mount Rushmore of fast food items? Uh, the Shamrock Shake is there for sure. Absolutely. Um, fast food items. Um, I love Chick Fil A waffle fries. That's on my Mount Rushmore. Um, this one is hard to narrow down. But Chick-fil-A waffle fries are there because there's got to be a fry. It's them and McDonald's are the two best fries. But the problem with McDonald's fries is you got to get them fresh. Yep. If you don't get them fresh, then they're very mediocre. While Chick-fil-A's fries are like almost always fresh. Made, and you can even get them made to order if you want them extra crispy. Okay, so I'll put Chick-fil-A there. Um, because just overall, there's there's a higher consistency with their uh, excellence there. The Shamrock Shake, McDonald's gets a spot anyway with the Shamrock Shake, so they get a spot there. Um, I'm going to go with um, uh, the uh, an Arby's giant roast beef slathered in Arby sauce, which I think Arby sauce, maybe even more than Chick-fil-A sauce, is the greatest fast food condiment. I think I think Arby sauce is incredible, and we're not counting like pizza joints as fast food, right? No, no, okay. No. And then um, I think the best fast food burger is actually 
Uh, Hardee's Carl's Jr. has the best ones. Why are they highest, always left off the list? I know, highest quality meat. Burger joints. Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, one of those monster burgers at Hardee's, Carl's Jr., the Shamrock Shake from McDonald's, waffle fries from Chick-fil-A, and uh, and Arby's giant roast beef slathered in Arby's sauce. That's my, Those are my four. I'm going with those four. Uh, the Big Mac. It's got to be on there. It's a classic. The uh, the Big Bun. I, uh, I will also go the the waffle fries and the the, the waffle fried chicken sandwich at Chick Fil A. I, I, I the spicy chicken sandwich. I'm amazed at how consistently uh, good uh, uh, that thing is. I will also go with the roast beef sandwich, but not with the Arby sauce. With the horsey sauce. I can see Mr. Vinegar yeah. in Wisconsin wine the horseradish. I can see that. Is, yeah. that, that is, I'll allow it. It's that, a dude call. Yeah. That is crucial. Boy, but I, I need a fourth. I mean, like if, if if they offered me like a high, I mean, I love Arby sauce so much. If I was like at a Ruth Chris or a Fleming's and they were like, do you want our house made steak sauce or Arby sauce for your ribeye? You I would take the you Arby are sauce. You the ugly American. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Uh, and uh, well, no, that's not a. What do you got, Aaron? I need one. So for me, it's it's the double quarter pounder. That's the go-to if if I go to McDonald's, which I, I don't do very much anymore. Double quarter pounder, no bun, of course. Um, the uh, Chipotle uh, bowl with steak, oh, extra steak. Um, the super potato Olays from Taco John's, which I don't think is a national chain. And then the uh, the Reese's Blizzard from Dairy Queen. Man, we're con like Chipotle's fast food. Yeah. Is oh well then I go the, the Quito the Qdoba steak burrito is my go to. And I'm I am I'm in the minority of this I found, but if you put Pancheros, Chipotle, and Qdoba next to each other, I'm a Qdoba man through and through. The the queso at Pancheros. It's, it's the, the their best, food's yeah. o- is okay, but the queso is spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. And Pancheros, I think, is just an Iowa. An Iowa thing. Is it just an Iowa thing? I think it's just around here, yeah. Uh, Question three. What's one thing you absolutely wish to do or accomplish before you die? Um, I mean, am I supposed to Jesus juke people? Is this, you know... You can do that if you would like. um, It's your show. You've been talking a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll cut you some slack. You know what I would love to do? I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it uh, earthy. I, I would love to have like a take like a Madden cruiser for one season to every Michigan football game. That would be really cool to do. Yeah, home and away, and do it in a year. Now, now, technically, I don't believe Michigan plays Ohio State anymore. I, I, my, uh, psychologically, I've just had to, I, I have to give in. Okay, I, I can't, I can't handle it. Fifteen years is enough. We'll see. Okay, no, no, there is no C. I've already got tickets, man. IMAX. Todd, Todd is adamant that you're going to watch this. Game. You guys should know me better than this. When I put my, when the door is shut, it is closed. I will be at the IMAX here in town to see Kong versus Godzilla. The Saturday after Thanksgiving, mark my words, I will not be watching that game. 
But for the sake of this exercise, I would if I got the chance to do it, I'd pick a year when we played Ohio State on the road. Just because I've always wanted to know, is it really as vile and hostile there to Michigan fans as Mich- as Michigan urban legend claims? Okay? So I'd pick a year where the Michigan-Ohio State game was at the shoe just so I could see what that full experience was like from the uh, the visitor's perspective. Although, I don't know, if this continues, they might actually start showing us sympathy at, the, the, at this point. But I, I think I would do something like that. Or if I could have an alternative... It would be to become the head of the DC Cinematic Universe. There you go. That's my answer to a lot of these kinds of questions. Uh, I let let let's go down a masochistic road. But oh I, yes, I still would like uh, to to serve a term in Congress just to see, right? Because I, I really You're want, dying to see I, if you can stand up to the the the. The, the 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 forces at work there i'm i'm confident i could stand up to it only because this i'm old enough now and i've had enough of trials where you had to find out if you could or not and you did uh but i ju- i want i want to just be the fly on the wall and watching we make assumptions about what it must be and most of our assumptions are are right from that general level of human nature but to, to really see up close how it plays out. Uh, it's a sick fascination I have, but yes. I like it. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think for me, uh, just a general a, a general goal. I, I would like to do a road trip in another country. I already like driving across this country. I mean that's a lot of fun to me. I, I part of, part of my personality is the the anticipation is is my favorite part. The anticipation of football season is my favorite part. The I mean I love football season, but uh, just looking forward to stuff. So I I love the journey getting there, and I think it would add an extra layer of fascination and fun to do it in another country and difficulty as well, of course. But I think that would be really fun. That's it for three questions. That's pretty much it for the show today, right? The movie, I, our, our listeners got The Vanishing. Oh, okay. You know, I went on a date in college of that movie. I thought it was terrible. Maybe I need to watch it again. Could might have just been my, I, I didn't think my date liked me. That might have ruined the movie experience. That'll it, do it. Yeah. It might, the premise, I've never forgotten the premise, so that stuck with me. We're going to stick around and do some overtime for our Blaze TV subscribers, and we're going to listen to some of the crazy voices in our head. To know what we're talking about, blazetv.com slash dace when that gets posted later today. blazetv.com slash dace. For the rest of you, we are back at it again tomorrow, noon to 2 Eastern here on Blaze TV Radio and Podcast right after Glenn Beck. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.